confess that I have missed the whole series because of being involved with um, teens, um, but I've listened to it onla- online, and um, for those of you uh, who are, might just flick a long one, for those who are new here or haven't been for a while, we are at the end of a series on me and my big mouth, and I am probably one of those people who probably say way too much. I overshare, I, I want to put in my ideas, and so this has been a really good series for me to, to just step back and um, hold my tongue. And uh, interestingly, yesterday when I was um, just reading some of the things about Queen Elizabeth, um, one of the things that was said by one of the journalists was that one of her principles was to say, be very reserved in her speech. And... Um, and I think she, she was very contained. She didn't just mouth off if she had an opinion. She was always very prepared of what she would say. And, um, yeah, I think I've got a lot to learn from that. And um, so, yeah, so the big thing that we've been talking about over the whole uh, four weeks are these words here. If you've been around for a while, you've probably heard them. Quick to listen and... And if I guess if there's nothing that you take away from this series, if everything else is forgotten, if we can just take these few words away with us, then hopefully uh, it will actually make a difference to um, our, our relationships in particular. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And I know for me, I have to tell myself that quite frequently and many times I forget it. So I'm hoping that after this series and after listening to these messages many times that I'm going to be a little bit better by God's grace. We started off the series with this thought here that our words, we don't have to use them to be right, but use them to make things right. And we moved on from there and we talked about that our tongue, that muscle in the body, never grows weary. It's small, like it can start a fire, but um, it can do, and with that, it can do um, great damage. And we are reminded that it's untamable and that we need to always take check of our tongues because, as we said, it can do so much damage. It's probably the biggest threat to our relationships. And then last week, we looked at the fact that... um, We use this term fish mouth, and it's interesting, I'd listened to this message, um, and I had some girls in chaplaincy, and they are having some girl problems, and the biggest problem was gossip. And so I talked to them about fish mouth. I said, you know what, you can be accountable to each other, and if one of you starts gossiping about some other girls, just say, fish mouth, fish mouth, fish mouth, and um, try and help each other to stop gossip. So we finished our chat, which took a long time, but then as I walked out the door, I heard one girl say, fish mouth, fish mouth. So it took like a millisecond as I got out the door. Um, But you know what? What if we did that to each other? You're fish mouthing, you know, calm the gossip, disrespectful language, dishonoring language, the lies, whatever it is, we catch each other out and just we don't want to be people who are fish mouthers. Instead, um, Paul wrote in Ephesians, instead... Uh, Be kind and compassionate. Build each other up. And one of the biggest things that is a threat to building each other up is bitterness. And bitterness comes because we have all experienced hurt. We've experienced hurt uh, maybe now, but often bitterness is something that's grown 
And that's because we've been hurt a long time ago and that there has sat inside of us and festered and, and fermented and bitterness has grown. And so with that, when bitterness is there, it's very hard to build if we're bitter. And this here is a foundation for our story today and our message today. If we're going to crack that cycle... We need to do as Jesus did, and we need to forgive. And it's an easy word to say, I truly know, but it's really hard to do. But I love this quote, and and just to set it straight too, this series has been taken from um, an Andy Stanley series that our church thought was an excellent series. And so um, the the credits go to him for the, the train of thought. And in fact, the quotes, many, most of the quotes in here that I've used are his words. I just love how he seems to be able to craft words together to, to really make a poignant statement. And I love this, is what he says about forgiveness. Giving someone in the past what they don't deserve so I can give people around me now what they do deserve. I don't know if you've ever heard it expressed like that. I, I never have, but I thought that was so powerful. Forgiveness is giving someone in the past what they don't deserve. So I can now give the people around me what they do deserve. So today we're going to put your seatbelts on and we're off on a really fast-track story of a person that most of you will have heard many times from when you were little. Um, So... As familiar as you are with this story, I hope you just stay on board because even though we have heard it many times, there's things in this story that I certainly like go, ding, oh yeah, I hadn't actually remembered that or even heard that from long ago. So pop your seatbelts on because Mark said, um, don't go long. So I'm going to work hard on that. So... Every now and again in life, what goes around comes around. We're all aware of that. Sometimes that that person that hurt us in the past, at some point comes back and they actually need us. And the big question we have to ask ourselves is, that moment. So our story today is a story that we will find very early in the Bible, You have to read a fair bit to get the story of Jesus, but this story is perhaps one of the second most greatest stories in the Bible and very much paralleled in many senses to to themes of Jesus, as are many stories in the Bible. So early on in Genesis, not far in, we find this guy Abraham who's given a promise and that promise was that he was going to be a father of many nations. Well, He had a few sons. One of the promised sons is Isaac, who has a son, two sons, Jacob and Esau. So amongst it all, there's not a lot of people to have a nation. And then we find Jacob. He has 12 sons. And out of all of these sons, one of these sons has the power, has the power in a moment to either be an instrument in this promise Or God would have had to use another way. And this guy is Joseph. He's the 11th child, but the first child of Jacob's favorite wife. And something you can take away from this is, don't have favorite wives. (laughs) 
Favourite wives cause trouble. Um, so, favourite wife has two children, and when Benjamin is born, Rachel has Benjamin, she dies at childbirth. And so, for Jacob, he is extremely grief-stricken, and he, he kind of overcompensates and favours Rachel's children, particularly Joseph. Little babies, so little still, Benjamin. Another rule of thumb, parents don't have favourite children. You would have thought Jacob would have learnt this because he was a favourite child, but no. So he has um, this favourite child who is, uh, soon learns that he's favoured. He's a tattletale, he gets a special coat, he has these dreams, and it doesn't take long for the other ten older brothers to go, you know what, we don't like you, mate. So we find in the story that we have this particular day, Jacob says, Joseph, uh, take this food out to your brothers. Now, I reckon it was one chore he didn't like to do. And this particular day, as he's approaching at Dothan, these uh, ten brothers see him coming, and for whatever reason, they had had enough. And the thought pops into their mind, here's our chance. Let's for once and, once and for all get rid of this favoured, maybe arrogant brother of ours. And they put a plot to kill him. Over here is a pit, an empty well. They go, let's kill him, whatever, in, in, in some blood and let's pretend an animal ate him. And ironically, you find in the story, as it says here in Genesis, and this story uh, spans a number of chapters, but in Genesis we find it says, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. So they... At this point in time, they, they've grabbed him and they've put him in a pit. Now, I, I don't know, like, I, I think sometimes we can rush through stories so quick, but I try to think, what was Joseph feeling? Like, you know, his brothers have just tossed him in, like, hey, I'm here, like, can I come out now? Or, I don't know, I'm not sure what he was feeling. But likelihood, some kind of terror... But if he felt terrible in the pit, he was, going to, he was going to feel even more terrible really soon. Because when he had been thrown in the pit, Reuben, one of the brothers, had said to, said to the other brothers, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Like, you know, maybe just, just leave him there for a bit, but let's, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in the pit. And Reuben went off. But while Reuben was away, they are sitting down eating and they see this, this group of foreigners and they... The Judah goes, actually, maybe Reuben was right. And he goes, well, why don't we just sell him to these Ishmaelites? Let's not lay a hand on him. Of course, he's our brother. So compassionate. Let's not kill him. Now, he was 17. I don't know who's 17 here, but there's a few of you that would be 17. Ethan's 17. Yeah. Ethan Redmond's an example. This is Joseph, young man. He gets grabbed out of the pit. Now, maybe Joseph is thinking at this time, oh, phew, I'm out. And I don't know what happens between here, but he, I can't imagine he just went, just, you know, yeah, sure, no worries, just 
you know. Maybe there was a struggle. I'm not sure. But here he is. He's sold to these foreigners into the slave trade. What happens between here and Egypt? We don't know. How was he treated? What happened to him? Was he abused? We don't know. But we have this 17-year-old who's petrified, I would imagine, and thinking that that's the last I'm going to see of my family. And certainly for those brothers, they thought that's the last we're going to see of him. So he rocks up. He's at the, the slave auction, possibly stripped naked, standing there, people looking at him every side, bidding on him, and he ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So what is written next is one of the perhaps stranger will take home for us. The very next verse it says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Now, I don't know how that sits with you, but you've just been sold by your brothers. Who knows what's happened to you? Now living a slave life, and you're saying God is with Joseph? Like, really? Don't good things happen to people who love God? It's quite a a, a challenging thought, and yet it's not the only time that you will find this sentiment in this story. It's a very strong standout concept. And what actually even, even is more amazing is that Joseph lived... He chose to live as if God was with him. He did not choose to live as if God had abandoned him. Actually, in this time, he chose to live as if God was with him. And Potiphar notices Joseph. And as Joseph works around the house, he can see how thorough he is, how gifted he is, and he ends up giving him administrative rights over his whole affairs, except for his wife. And Joseph is so thorough and so good day in, day out. And he's so good that eventually Mrs. Potiphar looks at him, this strapping young man, and says, Slave, I want you to sleep with me. Now, I don't know if um, she had ever heard the words no before, and certainly not from a slave. But Joseph's words to her were, No. No, because your husband Potiphar has put me in charge of everything. How could I do that? And the second reason was this. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? Really, Joseph? Isn't this the God that's abandoned you? Like, isn't this the God who has let you down? No, this is not how Joseph sees it. How could I possibly sin against God? Not sure if Potiphar's wife understood what that even meant. But she didn't give up. She kept on him day in, day out, week in, week out. Demanding the same request, him giving the same answer. But Joseph's, the tide was going to turn for Joseph. And on one day, he was caught out. 
He was trying to get away from the situation. She grabs his coat and then she uses it as a weapon, as a, as a rape charge. And then Joseph finds himself in prison. Potiphar had no other option. Here's a guy that, that basically his wife is saying, he's, he tried to rape me. There was nothing else he could do. And so he ends up in prison. In, not just any prison, but where the, king, where the pharaoh put his, his prisoners. So maybe high security. Nobody knows exactly. But no, no, highly possible. It's very dark, very dank, and not very nice. So then we find, not long after this, this same passage. But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. Really? This is the second thing. He's been falsely accused. He's put in prison. And God is with him? Come on, God. This is ridiculous. When bad things are going down in in my life, in your life, is this the first thing we think? God's with me? Isn't it so tempting? Isn't it the devil's way for us to say, why, God, have you abandoned me? Shouldn't Potiphar's wife be in prison? Like, wouldn't that be the right thing? Ironically, in prison, he goes about Same as he did in Potiphar's house and as he's working there, he's thorough and he's careful and and the prison um, wardens, they see that and it says in the Bible, God showed him Joseph favour and granted him uh, kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, I don't know about you, but favour and a prisoner, not so great. Would you see that as kindness and favour from God? But this reminds us of this. Bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. But God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. So he's in prison. And one day, two other guys join him, a butler and a baker. And on this particular morning, as time has lapsed, he notices the butler and the baker are particularly sad. Now, I don't know, you probably feel sad in prison most days, but there's obviously a level of sadness. On this day, truly sad, and Joseph asks them, what's wrong, blokes? What's the matter? What's going on? And they both share that they both had a dream in the night, and they both don't know what it means. And Joseph says, well, you know, I'm a guy who's had a bit of experience with dreams back in the day, and why don't you just tell them to me? Maybe, maybe I might be able to help. So they share the dreams, and the butler tells him his dream, and then Joseph says, hey, well, you know what? This is what's going to happen in three days. It's Pharaoh's birthday. He's going to let you out. You're going to be reinstated. You can raise your head up. You're going to go back into the king's palace. You're going to serve him. He said, um, it's going to be wonderful for you. And the butler is cheering. And then Joseph says, hey, 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 when you get out, 
Hey, tell him about me. Tell him, look, I'm here. I shouldn't be here. It's, you know, I've done nothing wrong. Tell him about me. Tell him, don't, you know, and, and the butler goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. I'll tell him about you. And the baker goes, okay, great, awesome. What about me? Three days, baker, your head's going to be raised up actually right off your body. And you're going to be impaled on a stake. You're going to be eaten by birds. Now, I'm not sure why he went into all that detail. You'd think if he knew the dream and the interpretation of it, he might go, well, baker, you know, um, not so good for I mean, not so good for you, but no. And as it happens in three days, this is what happens. Joseph is left in prison. These two go out. What would you be thinking if you were Joseph? Will he come get me today? What about tomorrow? Is he going to come and rescue me now? Day in, day out, I'm sure he's thinking... Surely the butler will, surely I'll hear something. But the Bible says this. The chief, the chief cupbearer got him. And this might be our story right now in some circumstances in our lives. We might feel totally forgotten. Two years pass. Two years forgotten. Two very, very long years. And then one day... There's a rat-tat-tat on the prison door. There's people coming in. Joseph! They're throwing him into the shower. They're shaving him. They're giving him a new set of clothes. They're doing everything. He's like, woohoo! What's going on? You're going into the presence of Pharaoh. He wants to see you. So he heads into Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says this, I've had a dream. And no one can interpret it. But I've heard you say that you, of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Well, Joseph says, I can't do it. The butler would be like going, what? Am I heading back to prison? (laughs) Like, what is going on? But God will give Pharaoh the answer He desires. Here we have it again. God, what? You mean this God that's abandoned you, Joseph? You're still claiming his name. And he's also pretty brave to be saying, yeah, Pharaoh, you know, you might feel like you are God on earth, (laughs) like little G God, but I have a big G God. So Joseph does. He, he, he interprets a dream where there's going to be seven years of heaps and heaps of grain and heaps and heaps of good times and there's going to be seven years of complete drought. It's going to be a famine. It's going to be really, really bad. And he interprets the dream and you'd think after that he would just go, so there you have it. But no, here's this young guy straight out of prison talking to the most important person in the known world at the time and he gives him some advice. And he says, you know what, Pharaoh, this is what you should do, Pharaoh. It's going to be like really bad, really good for seven years. So what you should do is, is take 20% tax of all the grain. Anyone who gets grain, all the harvest, build yourself some big silos, 
put it all in there, store it all up, and when those, those seven years of, of drought come, he said, you know what? Sell it back to the people. They'll totally forget about the years of abundance. They'll be desperate. It's going to be so bad. You can sell it back. You'll own so much. You'll have so much money. And maybe because it sounded so good for Pharaoh, he let him just go on. And he, off he went and he said, but you know what? Also, Pharaoh, it's going to be such a big project, such a big job. You're going to need somebody in charge. You're going to need to get going straight away. There's going to have to be big silos built in heaps and heaps of cities. And you really need to... He's just come out of prison. Maybe he's had 45 minutes with the king, um, the Pharaoh, and he's giving him this advice. And there's silence. Okay, what next? And Pharaoh acknowledges, hmm, good plan. And he says this, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Now, all the other guys in the court were probably going, what did he just say? Is that, is that what I'm thinking? Like, is that a rhetorical question? Is he seriously meaning that guy? Like, we've only known him for such a short time. Like, this is ridiculous. This is outrageous. And we have it. Joseph, the prime minister, then and there. Pharaoh said, since God has made all this known to you and there's no one as discerning, as wise as you, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people that submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater. Joseph never realised that he was in training in the dungeon, in training in Potiphar's house for such a time as this. And he gets about. Then and there, here he is, Prime Minister, elect. He's got amazing administrative skills. And through those seven years, he does exactly as what he had told Pharaoh should be done. He gets that grain in. And then two years later, the famine, after those seven years, two more years it, it's really bad. It's stretching out beyond Egypt. And by now, Joseph is 39 years old. In his home place, we have Jacob. They're hungry. They say, he says to his boys, go down there, buy some for us that we might live and not die. And they do. And on this particular day, these 10 brothers head into Egypt. Out of all the places in all of Egypt, out of all the towns where the silos are, they turn up at the very place Joseph is on this particular day. And we could put it like this. The stage is set and the fortunes are now reversed. The stage is set and the fortunes are now reversed. So when Joseph's brothers turn up, they bow low to him, their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them and he pretended to be a stranger. This is Andy Stanley's line, but he said, you know why? Because he walked like an Egyptian. Anyway, so. I'm stealing his, his humour. Last time they saw him, he was a 17-year-old, scrawny, ratbag of a little brother. Now he's a 39-year-old, second most important person in the kingdom. 
spoke another language, wore fancy clothes. Who would have thought? Here's the moment. What do you do when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy? What do you and I do when we've now got the power and our words determine the destiny of our enemy? Do we turn things around? What do we do and what we've done with our bitterness and our anger? What do we do when we have the power and our words determine the destiny of our enemy? The next three chapters, Joseph plays a heap of games on his brothers. He calls them spies. He plays tricks on them. He asks questions about the family. And if you, I'd encourage you to reread the story of Joseph. But we're going to skip, 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 and eventually we find that months have passed. We find these guys all in a room with Joseph again. And maybe all this time was needed for Joseph to wrestle with his own emotions. What was he going to do? How was he going to answer this question? He had all the power. All the power. So they're in this room. And the Bible says this, Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, have everyone, have all the, everyone, all you guards, all, all my attendants, can you guys just go? And it had been a bumpy journey for these ten brothers. Like things were happening to them and had happened to them for months. And they were just like, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And here is another moment of like, uh-oh. What's going on? What is going on? I'd imagine if you could, you would have heard their hearts beating. And then he says, I am your brother Joseph. Well, if their hearts were beating, I'd imagine they were like subwoofers now. <laughs> hey, what went through their mind? Like, what went through their mind? Oh, no. <laughs> their fate could be impaled out in the courtyard one by one. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? If you could say the Bible said they wet themselves, they probably wet themselves. But that's not what the Bible said. <laughs> Joseph asks a question. Is my father still with him? They're sitting there. They've been asked a question. But they couldn't answer him. They were terrified in his presence. What do we do when we have the power? And for their good fortune, Joseph had lived as if God was with him and he had kept bitterness at bay. 
And he, this story is like that parallel to the Saviour because of this. The Saviour of the world would do exactly for you and I, many years later after this story, as Joseph did for his brothers, he forgave them. The Saviour of the world would do for you and I, many years later. And in the story from this point, Joseph says, I want you guys all to come live in Egypt. Bring dad, bring your wives, bring your children, bring the grandchildren, bring everything. Come, I'm going to look after you, I'm going to feed you. And that's what happens. And the years pass and eventually Jacob dies. (laughs) And the brothers? Monarch. Dad's dead. Now it's going to go to rupture. He's going to get us and he's going to get rid of us. We're going to become his slaves. And so they go to him and they, they, they say, Joseph, Joseph, just don't kill us. Just, just let us be your slave. And perhaps one of the most powerful parts of the story, if not there's been so many, is this. Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Not am I God. He knew he wasn't God, but am I in the place of God? And sombering, I guess, for all of us, it's a question we have to remind ourselves or ask ourselves, like, am I? Andy Stanley puts it this way. You will never experience the good that comes from the bad unless you recognize that God was with you in the bad and then refuse to play God when things are good. Joseph says, God, you intended to harm me, but God used this to accomplish good. You know, God is bigger. God is big. I love that. I often use that at school. You know, my God is a big God. And this story is ridiculous in many ways. God seems silent, really, for Joseph. If, if I could just put my feet into his shoes and lived his journey, would have I lived the way he lived? God seemed silent, but he was always with me, Joseph testified. God used me. I let him use me in my difficult times to do good. And in fact, so he said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and spoke kindly to them. To me, that's the epitome of God, of love, and of grace. It's ridiculous. And this is where we end. The question is this. What do we, what do you and I do when we have got the power and our words determine the destiny of our enemies? We have the decision to pay back or pay it forward. We can decide whether we will take the cues from the one who gave his life for us and not the ones who took life from us. We need to take our cues from the one who is with us and not the one or ones who've abandoned us. 
Joseph lived as if God was always with him. He made that choice. And that's the call today. And if we do that and live like Jesus, we in ourselves will be free. And our words may just set another life free too. And we will experience God's amazing grace.